Follow me, some people own stocks. Welcome to Playing Footsie, the podcast where we talk about stocks, investing, and personal finance. Before we start, we want to make it clear that the information presented on this show is for informational and entertainment purposes only. None of us is a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. Investing in the stock market comes with risks, and we strongly encourage our listeners to do their own research and consult with a licensed financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Now, let's dive into the world of finance and talk about what we're doing with our money. The sucker's going up. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Show. I'm Steve W and I'm here with Steve D at the end of what's been quite an interesting week for UK stocks. Uh, We've got some news from the UK's macroeconomic environment. We've got some lots of earnings calls from interesting companies and we've got some uh, questions from our viewers that we always like to get and we always like to think about and we always like to try and answer as well. So all of that coming up. But first of all, Steve, how's your week been? How's your stock market week been? Uh, week's been all right, Steve. This has been the last week um, before I have a week off, which is next week. Uh, so it's dragged on like hell, to be honest with you. And I thought it would be a really nice, easy week, but it's ended up being quite a difficult one where I've had to uh, do quite a, a fair amount of travelling. I was set for doing zero miles and I ended up doing two full days worth. So uh, <clears throat> quite a tiring week, Steve. Got a, got a busy week ahead planned to some degree anyway. We've got to go to Ikea at some point because that's what... I, I suspect a lot of new parents have to do uh, and we've got a nursery to at least start doing so I'm going to paint and uh, wallpaper um, that so i got all that to look forward to we had our 20 week scan Steve at the uh, weekend um, we're 98 point sh- uh, 98% sure that it's a girl um, through no other reason hey. that uh, baby had um, knees next to ear which made it quite difficult to um to get a get a confirmed sighting, if that's what you want to call it, or not sighting, um, depending on which view you're taking there. So we had to we ended up having to uh, do about a mile and a half of walking to try and get the baby to move into a more sort of like uh, decent position for the. I think they're a sonographer. Are they? Is it a sonographer? Is that what you, what you call them? Scanner? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it didn't work. Baby was just as lazy as uh, both of us. So uh, yes, but we're ninety-eight percent sure. Ninety-eight percent sure it's a gal. Congratulations! Uh, I remember much. our twenty-week uh, um, scan, and I remember our person who was doing the scan saying, "Yep, I can see something there, and I can see something there," and and thinking, "Well, yeah, I don't know what exactly that means." And she said, "So, do you do you know what that means?" I'm like, no, of course I don't know what it means. That's why I'm here. Uh, she's like, "I think those are little boy bits." I'm like, "Okay, good." Uh, so that is basically how they do it, as I understand it. They, you know, look for some bits, and if they can see them, then it's a boy, and if they think they can see and they're not there, it's a girl, and if they can't really tell, then uh, you don't find out. See, see, before before we were subjected to all of these scans, before if somebody showed me a scan picture, I wouldn't have even known which way to to have it up. But now you start thinking, yeah, hey, yeah, there's a foot. That there's the hand, there's that, but at the weekend she was like, "Oh look," and she sort of like flicked through the frame. She went, "Look, that's the baby's lips," and I was looking at it going, "What? Like where?" I just I just couldn't see it for the life of me, and like Laura couldn't either. But we just went to the point of going, "Yes, the lips. Yes, I can see them." It was it's such a strange experience. Like how the hell am I supposed to see lips on a black and white screen? I thought I could see Alistair's lips on one of his very early scans, but then I thought. I thought two things. One is they look a lot like lips, and two is they're about 85% of his head, so that can't be his lips at that stage, unless he's developing at a really weird rate or something. Um, he, he doesn't have enormous lips, by the way. He has a perfectly normal-shaped mouth. Uh, but uh, I remember looking at that and thinking, like, all I can see here is thinking, 
He looks like a chimpanzee. Yeah, I think there's an element of that, isn't he? Laura's been taking me on this little... Like somebody managed to have some kind of real-life womb tour with her camera, some kind of new procedure. And Laura showed me what that was wow. like. And I've, I've left with nothing else other than thinking that that's in, uh, incredibly weird and I probably don't want to watch it again. Okay, so comment down below. Girl names for Steve. Do you, uh, don't have to tell us what it is, Steve. Do you have one in mind or not yet? Uh, well, we're in the Comment midst... down below. Girl names for, yeah. <laughs> for <laughs> we're Steve. We're in the midst of arguing about it. We're very stubborn people. Um, it's lucky that it wasn't a boy in that we had zero names we agreed on. Ah. Um, but girls, we, we do have two that are, are, are fighting it out. But yeah, I'd be interested to see what people say. I wonder if anyone gets it. Oh yeah, definitely. Down below, guess uh, the name and oh, while you're at it, guess the weight of Steve's future uh, baby. That's the, we'll have our own version of a baby shower here at the Playing Footsie Show, and also send Steve any baby-related things that he might uh, want or need, and so on. Anyone give him a sticker for the back of his car saying "Baby on board." You got one of those, I assume? No, but uh, no. Send I've, Steve one of those. Uh, we've got one. It never sticks to our car window, but uh, <laughs> they kind of look weird in the back of your Tesla, anyway, wouldn't it? Well, only for five months because then the tesla goes back to the shop so uh, okay so it would look a lot more suitable in uh, what i assume is going to be my new car the volvo that sounds more like it yep uh, that sounds like the kind of thing people transport babies around in um news over this side is oh uk jobs news specifically i've got another one um i start in september in a new job that i'll be doing alongside my current job so for those of you who are, uh, may be new here or don't pay attention when i talk about myself just skip over this bit but uh, i teach at the university um i teach in oxford and they're setting up a foundation year for people who are from backgrounds that wouldn't normally lend themselves to go into Oxford, so that transition can be quite difficult in some places. They're sticking an extra year onto the front of some courses, basically to help people settle in academically and various other ways. I'm mostly on the academic-y stuff. They need someone to run the kind of philosophy arm of that or, or co-run the philosophy arm of that, and that's me from September. Uh, I'll be doing it alongside my other things, so I guess view it as a bolt-on acquisition uh, more than anything else, but it's... It's kind of helpful. I think it's probably a lot of work at the first and then not a lot of work afterwards. So biggish setup cost. And then, then after that, it should come reasonably straightforward, uh, I think. So that's... Congratulations, Steve, for your Thank 18th you. job. Yep. Uh, I do them all at the same time. I do them all for two hours a day. Um, and that's basically it. Not, not all of them for two hours a day. I do them all for two hours a week. Uh, but on uh, on any given day, I could be doing basically only one of them. You'd think by now I'd have figured out a way to make money off of one of them, but sooner I'll get to that point in a bit. I'm basically, uh, well, what's a company that like rolls up other companies and never seems to make any money doing it? Um, I'm like, oh, I've just teledoxed myself, basically. Uh, so, anyway, how's the stock market been, Steve? Uh, okay, from what I can tell. I ha didn't really take a note of the beginning of the week, so I think I've done all right, but I think I might just be relatively flat by the looks of it. I think I had a couple of down days at the beginning, um, uh, but other than that, it looks pretty okay to me. Uh, interesting. I'm up to quite significantly, um, and I think, as I look at it very briefly, that is largely due to the UK's macroeconomic stuff, which I will come to in a moment, but it is causing the value of the pound to slip off again uh, a bit, which is bad news in some ways, given how much the UK imports, you want the pound to be strong so you can buy more stuff, and that will help bring prices down for inflation, but... Um, in general, the pound has taken a bit of a hit this week, and that helps people like me who own stuff that's denominated in US dollars and makes its money in US dollars. Yeah, I own ASML and Netflix, who both had a significant fall in the week, which is probably why I'm looking fairly evened out. 
Yeah, I own neither, and I'm I'm not sure I've owned anything that's done done terribly, terribly well. Bank of America reported this week, but that is kind of an open secret what was coming anyway because of the stuff that happened the previous week with JP Morgan, City, uh, Wells Fargo, and so on. It would have been weird if Bank of America came out with anything kind of radically different. They've increased their dividend by some sort of nominal amount, which is no doubt why Paul's not here. He's very excited. Not sure he owns Bank of America, actually. But Steve, yeah. should we should we indulge our one listener who said we should make a cricket podcast and just quickly talk about the who cricket? Who said we should make a cricket podcast? I don't know, but I, I definitely think I saw it. I feel like I'm better at that than uh, this. I've run out of idea. Although this tends to happen kind of more frequently than cricket does. So yes, let's talk about the Ashes, Steve. Uh, it's by the way the morning of the twenty second that we're recording this for anyone who's uh, just to kind of put that in context for people. It's looking good, Steve. I think we're. T- uh, I said to you off air, Steve, and I'm going to say on air and commit to it. I think we're two sessions away from uh, a two-all draw here. I think we're on the verge of the re- well, the rest of this Australian team collapsing. They look like a wounded set of soldiers at the moment, and I wouldn't fancy. Uh, I mean, if we can get through the rain here, Steve, and we can uh, and we can win this test, I wouldn't fancy being Australia going into that fifth. They look awful. So I'm pretty confident we will get two sessions out of this, um, and. Uh, of what's left. There's been a lot of talk about the weather since before the start of this test, and this is what happens when you put uh, cricket matches in Manchester. Uh, it rains up there quite a lot, although um, I might come back to that in just a second. I think England are going to win this test. I think they will find enough to do it. I don't know whether I think two sessions will be enough or whether they'll find Australia have enough about them, but but all of a sudden it's looking very close going into the Oval, isn't it? I mean, two each and uh, Nathan Lyon not available for the Oval test as I understand it. And the momentum all England's way, and Johnny Bairstow finding some momentum as well, who says that criticism has been out of order. Um, oh, boo-hoo. But, uh, yeah. I do feel sorry for Johnny. He's a hometown player for me, isn't he? So mm. I'm always going to feel sorry for him. I'm always going to have a little bit of bias to him. But to be fair, I, I did think he was crap behind the stumps. But when he, he went through the amount of pins and nails and pieces of wood he's got in his ankle, I thought, yeah, it must be quite difficult to, to keep after three years with a with a completely new leg. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with that. And to be fair to him, he, he, as we said earlier, he's a very reluctant wicketkeeper. So imagine being three years without keeping a brand new leg and being reluctant to doing it anywhere. Uh, you're probably not going to perform as well as people expect, especially when... Uh, Australia have picked a specialist wicketkeeper in Alex Carey who let's be honest he can do nothing other than wicketkeeper he's he's an awful bat got a good um, arm for a wicketkeeper from back there yeah well no he hasn't really has he because he showed he showed over the uh, over this test that it's been a complete fluke he's had about 13 shies at the stumps <laughs> and he, he wouldn't have it if there were six sets so um, yeah not not, I'm not impressed with... To be fair, this Australia side, I go from thinking, they're not that good, to, yeah, they are actually very good, to then this test thinking, they're not very good. And actually, I think they, they've they been winning games in spite of their captain, rather than their captain actually adding something to the team. I mean, I've been watching quite, quite keenly every time it cuts to Smith, Who's been shoved on the boundary again, despite the fact that you know they need one, <laughs> they need to get one batsman out to, to to go and bat, and you can Smith is in absolute despair out there at how this uh, Pat Cummins is captain in this team, and he's starting to hear Glenn McGrath turn on him and Jim McDonald turn on uh, on Cummins because he's just too defensive. I've never met such a, a weird Australian team. They're just turning up and they're just being. They're just being absolute fannies about it. Get, the, the, the Australian teams that used to turn up would just smash England to bits, score 600, probably only bat like three times in the series because they just destroy us that, that much. <laughs> and this one is just... 
this is just it's woeful. It's like watching the, the like the, the Jack Russell era of England where we were just trying not to lose five nil, but for some reason they're doing it when they're when they're one and two nil up. Yeah, those sort of early nineties England teams uh they feel like quite a long memory away, don't they? I remember kind of growing up watching that lot and um, we were so far behind what was in fairness then a very very good Australian very team good anyway team. I mean we were behind everybody uh, we didn't just lose to Australia we'd lose to South Africa and New Zealand and the West Indies and Sri Lanka and whoever turned up would basically just beat us at start Zimbabwe <laughs> yeah we're probably them at some way along the way um, but I think we lost to the UAE once uh, and confirmed ourselves as like the worst team when you had people like uh, and this is not picking on them particularly but Mike Atherton and Graham Thorpe and uh, Darren Goff, that would have been a hometown fairly for you. Yep, getting slightly before my time, but um, it's interesting watching this team at the moment. I think of this Australia team as on paper uh, pretty good in some places, and then quite a bit of fillers. So I rate Stark, Hazelwood, and Cummings. That's that's three good teamers. Um, Nathan Lyon not there is a big miss for them, but if you imagine that team with him in it, okay, that bowling looks about right. Um, Smith and Labuschagne I rate highly, and that's. That's kind of where that stops, I think. The rest of them are sort of all right. Mitch Marsh did well in the last test. Travis Head has his moments. David Warner, Kamba, Osman Kawaja's done well early series. But those are all kind of bit part uh, players who might do something uh, for you. feel that way about a lot of the England team as well, to be honest. But uh, I kind of think... I'm surprised this Australia team hasn't done better. It feels like they had... I mean, they certainly got the upper hand early on, right? Raced into a 2-0 lead, albeit with two close ones, but they were on the right side of two close ones, and you have to be there or thereabouts to get wins in these. So it's... I think England are going to take the series? Uh, they could from here. I, I think they definitely could. They win this one, they've won it, I, as far as I'm, I think. Australia, Australia look like... Look like beaten men. Um, I was just going to say just before. I think I quite like this idea that McCollum's got, and it didn't really. It's not really resonated with me until um, until really last night when I was watching the highlights. And he's saying he basically treats every every innings as a one day game, doesn't he? He says, mm. "Look, it's a one day game. Forget about this playing at this like a test and trying to bat for two or three days and scoring seven hundred. You know, one a run every couple of balls. He just says, go out there and smash four hundred as fast as you absolutely can.'" And then bowl the team out as fast as you absolutely can, and then you know bat again and smash as many runs as you can as quickly as you can, and then get them out. And you think he's really has just got cricket down to this really really simplistic kind of uh, narrative where he basically says if England bat twice for about a day and a half and score eight hundred runs, we're going to be pretty much unbeatable because our bowling attack is pretty good. It's probably uh, it's probably our strength when when Stokes is fitter. It's def- it's infinitely stronger, but. Yeah, it's quite it's quite impressive. This this yeah, eight hundred is hard to, to eight hundred is hard to get for any team. And McCollum's a good fit for this current England setup. What you saw before was them trying to play under Silverwood and taking the long route, the traditional Test route, to, uh, to try and get as many runs as he possibly can. And England just don't have the players for that. Uh, Sibley and Burns are not good enough at that level to do that kind of thing. They may well be the best people we have for that kind of role, by the way. But uh, they can't. Uh, they don't have the skills to bat that long against that uh, kind of quality of bowling attack. So mm. what we can do is what we have, which is a bunch of good one-day players, send them out to go and bat like a bunch of one-day players, and 400 is 400 in any kind of game, basically. Yeah. It's not easy to get it in a test. It's not easy to get it in a one-day. It's a bunch of one-day players, and Joe Root, who is probably the best batsman uh, in the world in test cricket, or maybe maybe only to Smith. And I think he's better than Curley, so... So do I. I quite like Kane Williamson as well. But um, 
Okay, no. let's. Oh, one last, uh, one last Ashes thought then before we close this part of the podcast and then never return to the Ashes until next week. Did you see the news about Headingley and Old Trafford? No. They will not host Ashes tests again until 2030-something. So from now on, uh, or for the next set of couple of Ashes home series, I think, the five grounds are going to be Lords, so London, the Oval, so London, um, Edgebaston, so Birmingham, Trent Bridge, so Nottingham, and yes, the Rose Bowl. Uh, meaning that, <laughs> meaning that the Ashes will not go anywhere near the north of England until twenty thirty yeah. odd. There's been open Which letters it... from uh, the mayors of, uh, I think, is Yorkshire got a mayor or is it Leeds that we're looking at there? Uh, Probably Leeds, know. right? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it would be Andy Burnham from uh, Manchester, who's the mayor over there. Open letters asking the ECB to reconsider this. Andy Burnham, I assume, just reads something like, "It doesn't always rain." I promise, uh, but. England have potentially won those two tests and lost the two southern ones so far. Which is the strangest... southern ones. Birmingham's not that far south, but yeah. The the strangest thing about that is that more than half of the team, I think, comes from the north, doesn't it? I mean, we've got mm-hmm. Stokes, Wood, Bairstow, Brook, Root. Most of it comes uh, from Yorkshire. Yeah, Yorkshire and Durham, isn't it? That's where the, the two sets of team, uh, two players come from. So they're not play anywhere near where these players actually play. It seems like that would be detrimental. Yep, uh, and and we'll... Anderson is Manchester as well, isn't he? So bowling from the Anderson end. Yep. Anyway, a knots broad. So I yeah, guess they're keeping Trent off. Bridge, but yeah. Um, yeah. So okay, let's get to talking about things that people actually want us to talk about, shall we? Uh, let's start with some questions for this week, Steve. Um, we had a couple of questions in. Do you have them in front of you, or shall I? Uh, no, I've got them. I've got them. Okay, it's... you go for it. So local to me, Hull Investor, who caught me cutting my grass the other day, uh, he's asked a couple of questions for uh, for Steve and I to answer. The, the first one, Steve, was just best and worst investments. Uh, do you want to mm. kick us off? Uh, yeah, okay. So my best investment to date remains the one I always say, really, and I always forget that I have it because it's Southern Copper. Uh, Southern Copper, I mean, there's a good amount of anything bought at the time that I bought Southern Copper would have done fairly well, but it continues to do well, and I continue to like the outlook for it, and it's one where the more I look at it, the more I, I find out about it. I was kind of put onto it by friend of the show, Sven Carlin, and I tend to think the stuff he talks about is pretty up and down. He has a, At least by his own estimations, he has a pretty wide circle of competence that includes any number of things. Um, and I think perhaps some of it he reaches a bit further than he might, especially on meta platforms where he seems to have an unerring eye for getting the top and the bottom of these things the wrong way around. But... Uh, on mining stuff and on copper in particular he's got a video from about three and a half years ago maybe uh, that says you will regret not owning copper and then a piece on southern copper um, I'm very impressed with both of those things still am uh, and after that I did a bit more um, digging not literally in the uh, copper mining space and I picked that one up and, and since then it's a really nice kind of cyclical stock right you get paid dividends every so often sometimes they're higher sometimes they're lower because price of copper goes up and down and southern copper's business goes up and down a little bit uh but that's been my best one so far it never seems to change the thing i identify as my best because it's so far built up such a lead that i'm not sure i can really uh i can't see much catching it anytime soon mostly because i also like the outlook for it from here yeah, same same as you. In in terms of in market, um, I think it's hard for me to look past Southern Copper. Uh, I have actually been back onto my capital incinerator pile, which I I don't look at very often, and a lot of that is doing very well. So I've got uh, Wise is up forty percent. I've got um, 
Uh, Oran Holdings up 75. Mm. as a trainer brand. Um, there is uh, Nanox is up 152%. Uh, MongoDB is up 153%. Uh, Ginkgo Bioworks is up 83%. Uh, Duolingo up 75%, Axum Therapeutics up 95%. So all of them have done very well. Southern Copper for me is up about 108%. And uh, if you were talking outside the market, Steve, my worst investment is Be Good, a skincare company that managed to go bust within six months of me investing in it. Uh, that was quite impressive. And that was in the liquid uh, market that mm-hmm. I invested in as well. So I couldn't even do anything about it. And uh, I would say that probably my best of the lot is still yet to be revealed. And I think it might be one of yours as well, Steve. But I think it'll be Monzo. I think it's still going from strength to strength. And I think Monzo will end up being a pretty good stock we own that we should make a decent amount of money on. I'll look forward to that when it happens. Uh, Monzo, I was later to the party than you were uh, on this one. I was in uh, a big crowd keep round. That must be a little while ago now, actually. I remember I remember that happened because CrowdCube kind of went live and I was um, just between interviews for admissions candidates uh, at the time and hurriedly kind of got my uh, stuff in and bought and then went back to doing more interviews. So that was... And that cohort that we took in then have all completed their degrees now. So that was several years ago. Uh, and uh, some of them with a, a year's delay while they took time out and so on. So that's that's been a while back as well. Worst one. Uh, I'm sort of torn between two here. There's. I also have a company. Oh no, actually, I've thought of my worst company. Uh, it's. Um, I've owned two things that have gone bust. One that went bust after I'd sold it. In fairness, and I sold it. I think roughly flat of where I bought it. That was a REIT called Brick Lane. They own a bunch of um, basically residential flats, and effectively they went bust because of cladding issues uh, after. So I bought it pre Grenfell. Sold it well pre-Grenfell as well. Didn't actually keep it for that long. Um, and then they had all kinds of cladding problems and went bust eventually. But uh, needing to sort their cladding out and the value of their stuff just disappeared and they couldn't rent it anymore. The one that I think I um, have had go bust is either... I think it's called something like Recycling Technologies, which looked really promising. They had a machine for like turning plastics into... Um, well, recycling them, basically, and turn them into other useful products. Uh, that machine worked, and I'm not quite sure why, but I just discovered one day they were basically in administration and then broke. Uh, and I think I lost about 25 quid. In terms of more serious stuff, uh, I that was bought through Crowdcube as well, by the way. All these private investments I've made that uh, I don't do any due diligence on whatsoever. Uh, Boston Beer Company is probably the stupidest investment I've made. They were, they were clearly a fad in hard seltzer. Um, they do have stuff going on, but at the price I bought them, I bought them because their price had come down a lot, and it turns out that can go down a lot more as well. I ended up selling it way short of where I bought it, and way above where it currently is now, so that's been... I think I got Can as my worst investment, mostly because I didn't even try to invest properly into that. I did a stupid job, it went down and down and down, and I ended up throwing good money after bad, and um, eventually, eventually just had to get the damn thing off my screen, to be honest, Steve. I had a couple of goes at Boston B. I had one go in my ISA, and then it fell so far that it actually became something that I could put in capital incinerator. So <laughs> I, I, I sold it, and I think I took a 20-odd percent loss on that and bought a similar-sized position in the capital incinerator pie. And then when it came to new financial year this year, I decided to, because of the capital gains tax changes, basically turn, turn that pie, tune it down a lot. It was about 
10 grand in that and at the rate that some of those have increased you'll see that I would be very quickly getting to capital gains limits if that continues uh, so I uh, I scrubbed that portfolio right down to uh, well around 2 grand uh, in terms of its size so I managed to scrub off Boston Beer uh, in April I think it, no it was probably a bit before that I think I scrubbed it off in February I think and it was up about 10% and since then it's gone up quite a, a considerable amount more so uh, that was probably a, a bit of a mistake on my in fact scrubbing that whole capital incinerator pie down was probably a mistake uh, of, of how well it's done this year but it was just one of those things uh you know I hate having to faff around for tax and the difference between having to record every single trade you make outside of an account and having to submit that to your accountant and be uh, be responsible for the information that you put out was just it just i don't want to spend any time doing that so it was a right decision for me but it was probably the wrong decision overall yeah, fair enough. There's another question there for us as well, uh, Steve, which I found a bit more a bit more challenging. What was that? Uh, so the other question was, who uh, who do you look up to most in your life for having the drive to invest? Yeah, that I found a lot tougher because people, if we count in my life as people that I sort of engage with in real life on a, not on a literally everyday basis, but sort of fairly regularly, there isn't much there my interest in investing comes from mostly things i've seen on youtube and i don't just mean like random things like me and steve i mean things like uh warren buffett berkshire hathaway uh things and and kind of professionals in this area and so on so most of my drive kind of comes from there i think the place i would look most as my kind of source of inspiration for sorting out my financial life in general and then that naturally leading to investment would probably be my grandmother actually Uh, i was thinking about this question now she never invested in anything at least not willingly and she was not financially very smart um so but she had a decent set of principles that were going to keep her out of trouble and she stuck to those principles pretty well and here are the two of those principles that she had one was don't get into debt um which is a thing we hear quite a lot. Now, she took that to an unwarranted degree, but uh, it's also connected to her other principle, which is stay well out of stuff you don't understand. Uh, and in her case, that made her kind of uber-uber conservative to the point that um, she and my and my then-grandfather uh, lived in what was a council house around the time that uh, Thatcher's government were turning them into not council houses and basically selling those off. And they found themselves kind of confronted by uh, two options. One was buy it themselves, at least strictly two options. One was buy it themselves, two was have some, one of the kind of bigger uh, bigger players buy it. Um, and they went with, well, we're going to try and buy it ourselves. So they took a mortgage and did that. And of course, a mortgage is a form of debt. And uh, so kind of dismayed was she at being in debt that she went down the bank with all of her cash and basically said, here you are, I'm paying this thing off. And they said, look, this isn't really a very good idea and it will take like nearly all of your cash and it's not going to pinch you this mortgage. And she's like, don't care, paying it. Um, And in doing so, she then went on to go and own the house that she lived in until the end of her life. My dad was born there, his sister was born there, so on and so forth. Uh, But I think her general approach of staying well out of stuff you don't understand the day and age that I live in now uh, is one where things are much easier to understand. There's also a lot more rubbish around, by the way. No one was trying to hawk Bitcoin onto her back at that uh, point or anything like that. But sticking to stuff that you understand, if you have the opportunity to understand um, stocks and investing and, and those kinds of things, I think that's probably an important part of how I kind of think about things. Twofold. One, don't go broke don't let yourself go bust don't put yourself in danger uh with your financial life whether that's investing or anything else and number two 
stay on things that you understand or, or can understand reasonably well. Uh, and I think the person I look up to most in terms of sorting that out is is probably her. Very, very nice, Steve. Very nice tribute. Unfortunately, you've thought about that a hell of a lot more than I have now. So this is gonna look, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is going to look like I have spent no time on it. But what have you got, uh, Steve? Well, my <laughs> my answer is, and I might just loop this section in eight or nine times <laughs> so that it's a little bit longer. Is I, I I genuinely don't look up to anybody in that kind of way. I don't I don't think I've got this drive to invest from anyone other than myself. I mean. In terms of not looking up to anyone, Steve, today I've woke up with the stiffest neck possible, so I'm not looking up to anybody whatsoever. But selfishly, Steve, I do invest and save like this for myself because I've long had this thought that there are much more things to be doing uh, than working, and uh, the reason I invest is that I think that it will, and I hope that it will, will get me there one day. So uh, that's why I do it, Steve. Do you find that challenging, uh, Steve? You know, it can be kind of hard being a sort of island by yourself. I mean, I assume that means you make different decisions to other people in your sort of rough financial position. Um, Sometimes it looks like they're having more fun or or not really. Maybe, but um, I don't really... I'm not. I'm not like any. I'm not like a, a hedge twitcher. You know, what I mean, I'm not anybody who's looking over the fence mm. and seeing what they're doing or anything like that. Um, so I'm not particularly bothered. I, I'm not particularly bothered about what anybody does in terms of when somebody comes and says, "Oh, I've bought this new car," or "I bought this." You always like, well, I don't really like cars, so uh, that's not a problem for me. <laughs> you know what I mean, it's like my wife really, really, really hates flying. So if she says to you, like. Uh, at the moment, obviously being pregnant, the last thing she could she would want to do is go uh, go flying anywhere. Uh, that would cause a lot of stress for her. So we just haven't gone on holiday. Steve, we still haven't been on honeymoon. So uh, I feel like I'm a little bit scroogey with this, but I do have the money sat aside. It's sat there waiting to go on honeymoon, but I just don't think we're ever going to bother doing that. We were ages going on ours. I mean, that was more of a COVID-enforced uh, thing, but people gave us kind of vouchers for uh, our uh, when we got married that were... I mean, we asked them to, uh, basically, that could be put towards these kind of uh, honeymoon type things. And um, it took us a long time to use it. Eventually, we ended up uh, using them and booking something because we had to, uh, basically. They were expiring. So we had to hurry up and book some damn thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just booked it for as far into the future as we could and just hope to God that the COVID stuff will have gone away by that point, which um, it mostly had. Uh, we did manage to go and it was all fine. We were actually in the point where it was just unwinding and there was chaos at airports, mostly because uh, uh, airlines had gone from sacking everybody or putting everybody on the bench to suddenly realising, oh, actually, no, we have to like operate things uh, and, and being very badly prepared for that. No, see, we we don't. We're not one of those people who say like every year we have to go away every year. So normally we save up a money over a couple of years, and then we go on a big holiday somewhere. So, uh, for instance, I think the last time we went away was just before COVID, and we went to Disneyland Paris, and we stayed for a full week. And uh, we went with my uh, brother and his wife, and my mum and dad, and the kids and what have you. And we surprised them because they thought they were just going on their own, and we all turned up and we rented a big Airbnb, and we 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 blew it, Steve. We had five guys. I mean, we. Really Really, really push the push the boat on the budget. Uh, we had five guys at Disneyland Paris. Can you Whoa. imagine how much that cost? It was like thirty euros for a meal. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we uh, <clears throat> when we do go on holiday, we do tend to tend to blow the budget, and we haven't been since 
it was the year before COVID, so that's what four or five years now. So we are due uh, a decent sized holiday. Unfortunately, that holiday money is is currently sat in a first direct account as I'm trying to steal 175 pound off them and close the account. Um, <laughs> but we'll uh, we'll see. Fair enough. Um, okay, so I guess those are our, our people we look up to. I'm thinking maybe I have fond memories of a, a grandparent who maybe helped me try and figure out my way financially without knowing the details and not really having much of a financial education. And in your case, Steve, finding it out for yourself and trying to carve your own path here. Um, hope that answers that question anyway. Uh, let's get on to some more, let's get on to some slightly more ordinary stuff uh, for us. Let's start with the news from the UK. News from the UK is good. My portfolio is going up. I mentioned we would talk about this a little bit, and it's mostly because of the exchange rate helping. The news this week is that inflation in the UK has come down, finally, from 8.7% to 7.9%. It's basically at 8%, and everybody is uh, very excited by this. So... Most recently, the Bank of England had a big 0.5% rate hike, and that caught people off guard a little bit. They weren't expecting another big shove like that because inflation had been static at 8.7. So they said, all right, let's try and give it a bit of a kick. Uh, they took rates from 45 to 5%. Uh, and that did uh, give things a bit of a, a shove. Inflation is now on the way down again, and people are talking about a peak interest rate of about just below 6 rather than just above 7. Uh, the FTSE 100 went up 2%, which is a lot for that index just in case anyone's wondering. Uh, and the FTSE 250 on Wednesday had its best day since February. Uh, okay, Steve, are we out of the woods then in the UK? I mean, finally? Well, it's difficult really to say so, isn't it? Because I, you look at trueflation. So trueflation in, uh, in in the US is, is kind of a, an interesting statistic because you, you look at the, the figure that's being reported, uh, which is around 3%, and trueflation says, actually, it's more like 224 uh, so uh, you know, in terms of um, in terms of what the inflation is actually in, it's it's we trueflation thinks it's less. Now you switch that to the UK, Steve. We're reporting uh, is it seven percent? We're reporting at the moment. Did you say uh, seven point nine is where we're seven, reporting at the moment? Seven point nine. Well, trueflation says it's actually eleven point four, and trueflation also says that it's been as high as twenty one point four. So it uh, it thinks that potentially. Uh, the UK is fudging the numbers a little bit here, Stephen. I think, to be honest with you, that's also very true. Um, so yeah, interesting for me, Steve. I don't think you're. I don't think at seven point nine uh, percent inflation, you're out of the woods. Well, no, we're out of the woods, Steve, because people will stop talking about inflation. Uh, that's when you know. I listened to uh, Mervyn King at the uh, during mm. the week when I was driving around, and he said. The sign of sustainable and uh, effective monetary policy is when the word inflation isn't mentioned uh, at all, and we're definitely nowhere near that at the moment. No, we are nowhere near that, and I worry that the path to that is um, is not straightforward either as a matter of just increasing rates and watching things come down by themselves like they seem to have done in the US. There are some areas where I'm not really sure that interest rates are much help. I mean, there are structural issues. We go on on this show because we both own full terror about structural issues of supply and demand in the housing market. I think there is basically too much demand. I get that increasing rates will help with that. But there is a structural shortage of housing in this country, and that will put a, something of a floor under prices or at least uh, create some drag on the rate at which they fall. The other thing that's really... Uh, looking like a headwind for inflation coming down to me is that wages are growing and they're growing quickly they're growing at seven percent over the last uh, sort of three month uh sweep that they um had in june so if wages keep going up at seven percent and you think inflation is basically 
too much money or a lot of money chasing not enough in the way of goods and services, 7% more money isn't going to help anything in that regard. Look, wages going up are a good thing for a number of reasons and for the people involved in particular. They are not a good thing in terms of bringing down inflation. Uh, And it's not clear that hiking rates does anything. Uh, And that, as far as I can tell, it might encourage people to save that money. I doubt it, to be honest. Um, I think what's... uh, You mentioned number fudging here. uh, And I think you're onto something here because I think what we're seeing increasingly is government starting to wonder, why aren't these rate increases working? Uh, And they're starting to blame everybody else. They're starting to blame oil companies and they're starting to blame shops and they're starting to blame uh, mortgage lenders and they're starting to blame banks and they're starting to blame all kinds of people saying you're not passing these things through fast enough. Um, And I can see I can see why uh, you would do that politically. You have a large class of uh, voting people who are dismayed, distressed and concerned, basically. And I see that there's a desire to do something about that that isn't just say, okay, well, let's hit them with the interest rate hammer again, because that's all the Bank of England's got, right? An interest rates up, interest rates down thing. Can we encourage or force, basically, some banks to go and pass through these rates quicker? Well, shops were just cleared, I think, by the competition regulator, uh, as I understand it, from any kind of wrongdoing there. I didn't realise we had a kind of competition regulator for shops. I thought the competition regulator for supermarkets was basically Aldi and Lidl, uh, who say, make your prices go lower or we'll steal all your customers. And they're doing it, uh, basically. I didn't realise there was a kind of additional competition regulating thing that we have that says, no, you may not charge these prices. I just thought it was like not very good business to overcharge people for the same stuff and people are not stupid. Uh, They will go and buy things elsewhere. In fact, they generally do, uh, based on what we were seeing from kind of general trends. So... I think I'm not sure I see many of these kind of headwinds rolling off that soon, Steve. 2% still feels like a very long way away, whether we use the nominal number, the real number, or the truflation uh, number. I feel like this has got quite a way to go, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think I think that's uh, I think that's 100% true. I think we're still n- nowhere near out of the woods yet. The last time we had inflation that was uh, at the rate that it's it's been to, whether you take the truflation numbers or the ones that the government want to uh, to fudge out, um, it took a massive recession to bring them back under and a lot of joblessness to to bring them back to two percent. So um, I hope we can avoid that because uh, that would be particularly nasty for the economy. But um, the UK is definitely not set up in the same way that the US is to weather these kind of interest rate increases. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's a particularly uh, frightening frightening part of the uh, of the market I think mm, okay bad news then uh, should we get on to some happier stuff let's do it let's talk about ASML then Steve they've reported some earnings you like ASML I do, I do like ASML. It's actually my third biggest position. Uh, and what they've put out here is uh, what I would say is a pretty strong report. So the stock fell about 4% on the day. Um, and in my desperation to find you a reason other than shrugging my shoulders and just saying, that's that's the market, uh, I guess uh, I would... I would sort of point to how much of their revenue China and Taiwan uh, have made up, but I don't really believe that's the excuse. Um, So I've got the earnings for you, Steve, and I have pulled 10 things out of the call that I thought was particularly interesting. So uh, let's uh, let's see what you think about this. So revenue was up 27% to 6.9 billion. Gross profit was up 34% to 3.5 billion. So that's a, a healthy gross margin for what is essentially an industrial 
Uh, net income was up 38% to 1.9 billion. Net system sales was 5.6 billion, uh, up 35%. And net servicing sales was 1.3 billion, which was about flat. New system sold, 113. Used system sold, because they do a, like a, um, a, an ASML renew program, where they take a used system, service it, replace the bits that are a bit faulty and sell them off. They sold six of them, um, which kind of makes... It's kind of funny, really, isn't it? They, they sold a total of 119 things, uh, Stephen, made 6.9 billion in revenue. Um, net bookings was 4.5 billion, 1.6 billion of that being EUV. Uh, the backlog uh, ASML currently stands at 38 billion. Uh, in terms of a sales split, 84% of it was logic, 16% of it was memory. Uh, and in terms of region split, 34% Taiwan, South Korea was 27%. And China was 24%. Management's guide. Uh, third quarter 2023 sales, they're expecting 7 billion, including about 1.4 billion of servicing. Uh, third quarter 2023 gross profit margin of about 50%. Uh, they were expecting to spend about a billion in R&D and about 285 million in sales, goods and administration. They think that that will mean full year sales of about 30% growth, which was revised up from the last report where they said that they thought it'd be about 25%, Steve. So uh, a quite healthy little raise there. They also gave some long-term targets, Steve, which they've uh, which uh, they've updated from their November 2022 investor day. They said that 25, so full year 25 sales, they expect to be between 30 and 40 billion. And full year 30 sales expect to be between 44 and 60 billion. So they're seeing a a pretty huge growth runway uh, still to come for uh, for the company. In terms of the call, <clears throat> they said that they're um, looking for the bottom of the cycle. They're still running at pretty high inventory levels and they need to moderate output to rebalance inventory. Uh, they think there's a, a, at the moment there's a little lower litho tool utilisation. Um, they said that the second half of 2023 recovery is now moving towards 2024 and they said that the shape and the slope of the recovery to them remains unclear. They said that memory uh, has not yet bottomed, but logic they think could be on the uh, on the verge of inflecting. Uh, they said that current Dutch and US measures have no material impact to financial outlook, and that long lead times of twelve to eighteen months has means that they need to make a few adjustments on capacity, and in the near term that's going to ex- uh, ex- expect a little bit of pressure on free cash flow. So they said that this in the current environment, we expect to see an ongoing pressure on our free cash flow. And as a result, we will be prudent in managing our cash flows and maintaining relatively higher levels of cash. So I would say to the, that, Steve, just don't expect massive dividend increases from this company and maybe not as many buybacks. But you shouldn't worry about that if you're a long-term investor because they will come back in time. So they reckon there's going to be a higher gross profit margin in 2025, Steve. Uh, they reckon about four, uh, 54 to 56% because they've incurred a lot of costs already. So in building that inventory up, when it comes to actually um, making the products with that inventory, they should see um, they should see better margins. They say that they now have a clear roadmap for introducing the 2 nanometer and 3 nanometer chips, which is the next generation. And they said that 2 nanometer and 3 nanometer fabs are coming, in, are coming and will be ready in 2025. High NA, which is the brand new EV, EUV machine, uh, that's the first module is going to ship this year. Um, and they said that execution is key on this. They can't disclose any of the PO bookings, but they have a double digit backlog and it's increasing at a rapid rate. They think that we actually are at the beginning of an AI high power computer wave, Steve. Uh, they said that uh, a lot of the inquiries that they're getting from their customers are about making these chips. Um, in terms of China, I know a lot of people think China are pretty close. 
Uh, this at China is working on about 38 nanometer process at the moment, so they're way behind. And they're way behind because of uh, these uh, restrictions um, uh, on, in technology reaching their shores. Uh, they said that they're way behind on deposition, which is the, the chemical layer, and etching, which is the actual marking out of the, the semiconductor. Uh, they cannot they cannot get the precision. It's not the machines necessarily that they've got, it's the precision that they don't have. Uh, demand is still more than ASML can ship, and any excess is going to China. Um, they also said that they are slightly worried that China is trying to build their own fabs um, due to these geopolitical tensions, but they are, again went back to the 30 nanometer conversation saying they're still not going to be very good. But they do think that there is more restrictions from the US government um, ahead and they will probably come out soon and they have no idea what they're going to be, but they are anticipating that uh, the, potentially the uh, demands on China, uh, demands on their shipping to China will will increase. But Steve, I thought this was a, a really, really positive report. There's loads of good news in there. Uh, uh, it looks like high and air is on its way to being released, which you know wasn't like EUV where they said it was going to be released and it didn't actually come out for ten years. Um, I think this one looks perfectly fine, Steve. The only thing I've really got issue with at the moment is I'm not massively wanting to buy it at the moment. I want to see. I don't know. It's expensive, Steve, but it's growing like a weed and it's got clear headwinds and it's one of those companies that you want to keep running through your your valuation just say, hang on a second, are these are these numbers realistic? <laughs> but it's tough at the moment because free cash flow has been depressed to such a degree that you've got to kind of try and normalise it to to get it to work. And then where do you normalise something that's growing at 27%? It's, it's very, very difficult to do. Yeah, it's uh, to let's pick up where you left off then for the moment then. So you're trying to figure out free cash flow for these things and you're trying to work that out over maybe let's say a 10, 15 year uh, kind of period because that's what you think you can sort of predict or, or after that maybe we'll stop growing in the same way. And I guess you have two questions then. One is how much you're going to get and the other is how soon you're going to get it. Um, and I, I was trying to work out like you why that stock was was down and uh, okay so when i think about this i think with my kind of uh writing hat on for the moment when when i write about companies i am required even if i'm bullish on them to mention some sort of company specific risk uh because it's important we tell people that there are such things these are motley fault uh, regulations you're allowed to be bullish you're allowed to say that you would buy this stock you are not allowed to say or imply that there isn't a risk you must explicitly mention some sort of risk that isn't just stocks can go down or owning stocks is risky or whatever and i try and think to myself well what is it in some of these damn cases uh the risk here i think is is the geopolitical stuff right um that's where uh, that kind of becoming more and more of a challenge can affect the end of their their market and i think so that's obviously as you pointed out not really a reason for a stock to start going down now at least not by itself that's nothing uh particularly new there's you need some sort of uh, announcement alongside that to, for this to be the right explanation. And I wonder whether it's the kind of delays and sort of pressure on cash flow and slightly lower returns in the near future stuff because we're interest rates going up, people want kind of cash. There is a genuine value to, to cash today. And ASML saying, look, we need to just kind of slow this down a little bit um, and it will come, but it will come further in the future. We're in the wrong part of the cycle to be, to be doing massive buybacks at this point. Uh, is... Okay, I can see that that changes the calculation slightly. If you think you're going to get the money but later, uh, that can make a difference. And the amount it's going to grow at, it's a tricky one, that. I mean, 
I, I'm always reluctant and I'm always a little bit suspicious when I look at big number predictions over time, uh, thinking about Tesla, which is kind of coming up. And I think to myself, OK, yeah, they may well grow like that for, let's say, five years or something, If especially if they're not optimized for profit yet, because you'll get a bit of a push from uh, just not reinvesting at the same rate. Doing that for 10 uh, or even 15, the laws of compounding become quite quite tough uh here because you have to add 35 percent onto a thing you've turned into quite a big number by this point but i mean asml of course they're doing it um it becomes increasingly harder to do it the bigger you get but they have such a huge backlog and by the sounds of things they remain so far ahead of their kind of competition for the uh even the things after euv that seem like uh it seems like they may well kind of get there steve i kind of looked at it price wise and thought that's not the worst thing I've ever seen here. We're looking at just under 30 forward. It's not the worst thing uh, I've ever seen. And if you believe that there's, um, I mean, essentially a doubling of revenue, isn't it? If you believe that they're going to double the revenue in 10 years' time, then there is, uh, there's no reason why you can't buy it at that kind of price. But it's tricky for me, Steve. I, I, I believe it, and I don't believe it in equal in equal measure, if you know what I mean. I think it's, it's one of those things where you've got to take it with a, a pinch of salt. You run it through your own numbers. And I mean, I can I can see a path where I I buy this, as we'll find out in a little bit, Steve. I've got a little bit of cash at the moment, but I just I don't feel like this is the opportunity. I, I'm kicking myself for backing October when I got the opportunity to average down on this company that I didn't average down more, and I added about a third to my position. But I should have I should have gone harder. I should have I should have made this a really large position because that was a cracking price back then. I think it got down to about three hundred and. 30 euros steve which is a, a, a that's a big difference between now and then mm, where are we now roughly i think we're in the 450s off the top of my head but i will look if you want to carry on while i look yeah i think i think you're kind of right though is what i was gonna say here i mean i i tend to believe that in life one of the worst things you can do is kind of compound your mistakes and if you think it was a mistake not buying it at 330 that doesn't mean you then run out and make another mistake by buying it at 450 uh, because it's just because you didn't buy it Six, back then 625 uh, sorry at 625 it's so. a lot higher than i thought <laughs> yes, it was yes it's almost double where it was then before in that case uh, and mm. and that kind of i guess speaks to the thought i have here right is okay you didn't buy it at 330 for whatever reason um, you now think it was a buy at three thirty. So what are you going to do? Go and buy it at nearly double three thirty. It might have been four thirty. Yeah, it might be mm-hmm. four thirty. You're thinking about it because I'm up about fifty five percent on it. So that does make about sense because I did actually manage to average down. Point still goes through here, I guess. But you're thinking mm. you have um, better opportunities available for the money you have available, albeit you're not entirely decided what those opportunities are yet or which ones precisely to look at. I think it's too early to tell. I have some cash. Mm-hmm. I have generated some cash from a sale, and I need to figure oh, out what just I'm doing with it. Well, you could just sit it there and earn interest on it for a bit while you do that, and then make well, up the difference in that. <laughs> I am doing that, Steve. It is. It is currently in CSH two. It's such a large position I've sold. CSH two has become my fifth biggest position. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, okay, well, we'll come to that one in just a moment then. But let's talk about Tesla uh, for a second here. They've also reported earnings this week, and their stock is also down uh, this week. Market didn't like what it was seeing here, but here's what it saw. Uh, revenue came in at $25 billion, which was about 47% higher than it was a year ago. Earnings per share came in at $0.91, cents, which is 16% higher than it was a year ago. 
And of course, that can only mean one thing. So when your revenue is up by 47% and your earnings per share are up by 16%, that means that your margins are a lot smaller than they were. And that's not a big secret. Uh, it's well known that Tesla has been discounting its uh, cars in order to try and boost its volumes. Uh, so you would expect margins to be lower, right? Um, it's an interesting story. This I'm very torn about what to think about this. Uh, I, there's also been, this appears to be a kind of spate of this going around in the EV market. So Ford are currently discounting the F-150 uh, Lightning and they've, ta- they've effectively taken it back to where it was pre a recent series of uh, price hikes. It's now new, I think, just under 50,000 in US dollars, which to me sounds like a terrific amount of money to... Uh, spend on a car or a truck or even I do like the look of the F-150 Lightning by the way Um, I'm not a massive car person but uh, if I was getting an electric truck it would probably be that rather than the Tesla Cybertruck which is on the way uh, presumably bulletproof windows and all Uh, that's coming so I'm not sure what to make of uh, Tesla driving down margins. I think, as I always think, I know what the bulls will say and I know what the bears will say. The bears will say, and and they will be correct about this, by the way, there is structural weakness in the US secondhand car market at the moment. Inventory is 71% higher than it was a year ago. They're running at 53 days of supply versus 38 days of supply a year ago. Um, The price of used cars is coming down. Uh, Teslas in general actually are now 30% secondhand, or 30% or 20%, depending on which model you look at, cheaper than they were a year ago in their secondhand market, or down, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's a year or a month ago. Price of secondhand Teslas is coming down. There is, uh, you will see Ford discounting, and you can say it's for the same reason. Basically, there's weakness in that car market. Um, that's not good if you're Tesla, it's not good if you're Ford, it's not good if you're anybody else. Here is another thing you might see uh, as going on here, though. Um, you might also think that, look, Tesla now have the US charging standard uh, as a source of revenue going forwards. They can arguably get themselves into a situation where, look, if nobody makes any damn money off cars, it doesn't really matter because they're going to make some of this. I don't think they'll make enough like that to justify their current market cap, uh, by the way. I think they would need enormous amounts off of the charging thing for that. But there is a sense in which that means they can afford to discount uh, margins in ways that Ford and, say, GM and so on can't. So I'm trying to work out who I think the winner in all of this uh, cash discounting stuff uh, is. And I have two viable answers in my head. One is Tesla, potentially, and the other is nobody, uh, basically. It could be that we all end up in a kind of airline-like situation where everybody is discounting everything to get it out the door and no one makes any money at all. Or it could be that Tesla is the the universal charger for all of these things does uh, kind of better. Um, We'll come back to valuation in a little bit, Steve. But did you see anything interesting in this Tesla earnings call? Nothing really, Steve. So I thought this is a these are fine earnings in terms of um, uh, well being a car company, which is what Tesla is at the moment. They discounted their cars and thus sold more cars. So that that's really. Uh, that, that was the story of these earnings but this doesn't lend well into the argument that tesla is more than a car company and thus deserves uh, stronger margins the idea being here in that tesla managed to generate a, a market for itself by uh well marketing itself very well in insofar as having a very very good car that they lent out to um 
you know that they lend out to people like uh, influencers and things like that to drive around because they don't actually spend any money on advertising but uh, you would be a fool to say that they don't market um they've made a very fast car that they've consistently made faster um lent it out to people to drive around and do the shock videos where they just put the foot down and scare people and, and it, they've created demand for their car um which has allowed them to sell the car at a much higher margin uh, than than its competitors but now when the market has got a little bit tougher and credit is very expensive tesla has been able to relax those margins and, and still be very profitable uh, and sell uh, uh, an awful lot of cars there can't be anything worse than owning a car factory and having no cars to make so it's the right thing to do uh, while uh, debt is expensive because you can't buy these cars for cash i would i wouldn't imagine there's very many people out there buying them for cash so um you would assume that they're going to take on uh you know leases and and uh, and debt for this and that makes um knocking the prices down pretty good but it doesn't lend well to that argument that you know teslas are so premium they have infinite demand and they can charge whatever they want that that argument has gone out of the window here but there's nothing wrong with this report it, it's perfectly fine uh it deserves to go down off the back of it because you know the margins have been quite severely compressed and bringing down prices is definitely not as easy as bringing up prices um but i didn't think there was anything particularly systemically wrong with tesla here no i continue to look at this and think it looks like an expensive stock uh to me and i think brian feroldi was talking about this on his video it's his largest investment so he and he was viewing this as basically a positive report he got into the valuation section that he's added in since well basically since everything he owned got mullered because it was overpriced but um he's got a reverse dcf calculator so he's attempting to work out basically what growth of free cash flow is currently priced in at the desired rate of return that he's looking at okay and he came to the conclusion that the amount of annual free cash flow growth for the next 10 years was around 35 percent per year that's a lot tesla currently is um well growing earnings per share at 16 percent okay by discounting but revenue growth is higher than that so it's there for uh, i would say a few years at least the number he came out with at the end for free cash flow per year is 122 billion um and that's quite a lot to generate in free cash per year as a i mean it's impossible as a car company if you, if they can get there on software and fsd which is uh well let's come back to fsd in a second but uh on various other things that have much higher margins than your average car company yeah maybe when i think of it in context 122 billion per year you could buy all of goldman sachs with that at the moment admittedly they are in a, a current uh, down part of their cycle you could buy all of starbucks you could buy all of intuitive surgical um, so it would be like basically adding Goldman to your uh, thing every year uh, at its current prices. That does sound like a lot to me. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It sounds uh, not well. It's, it might be achievable, but it's definitely not something I would I would bet my money on happening. I'm not sure I would at the moment. Um, interestingly, with FSD, FSD, I, since their last earnings call, Steve and I have been looking at this thing called FSD, which is fascinating. It's just endlessly fascinating to me watching people in comment sections talk about FSD. So on the one hand, you, FSD, it turns out, drives cars into other things uh, for the time being, unless a human stops them. Uh, and uh, Tesla, I think, in fairness to them, say, yes, you need a human there, and that human needs to be looking at the road and ready to hit the brakes or maybe turn the steering wheel or something like that. And so all of its critics say, well, that's not full self-driving. That's not what full self-driving means. That means self-driving with a human there to help it or something. So maybe it's like partial self-driving or something along those lines. Whatever. Um, 
okay, fair enough. And the Tesla uh, enthusiasts want to say, yeah, but that's what that's what we mean by FSD. We didn't mean like, oh, the car just takes itself off to the shops or something and it doesn't need a human there at all. Uh, and this is fascinating uh, to me because I don't really care about who is right about what FSD means. I think where I think this is important for investors is if you think about the kind of... Uh, let's take ARC as an example, not just because I want to make fun of them, but because they do have a very clear and detailed and they make it public uh, thesis on Tesla. And you can agree with it and disagree with it, but it's what they think and they are saying, look, here's what we're expecting. FSD is not the kind of thing, as far as I can tell, whether you call it full self-driving or not, um, that supports robo-taxis trundling around and picking people up and taking them to and from their destinations, at least not with a human there, in which case... Uh, I'm not clear it saves vast amounts of money on this sort of thing. And robo-taxis, uh, kind of automated ones, appear to be an important part of the ARC thesis here. So I guess the reason, for, uh, the thing I kind of take from all of this FSD um, noise and people arguing with each other about whether Tesla does or doesn't have it or what it even is, is that, okay, it's clearly not the kind of, it's clearly not robo-taxi thing, right? FSD might be uh, nice and useful for a bunch of things as a kind of, Fancier cruise control is kind of mean here, but uh, it, it may well be an improvement on what things do. It's not the robo-taxi thing. I haven't yet seen a sign that's particularly imminent yet of cars just trundling around the streets, avoiding each other automatically. No, and remember that Elon has said that uh, a robo-taxis, um, they should have been here about... Um, well, there's 20 million of them around somewhere, apparently. Yeah, I'll just I'll just check my watch, Steve. Oh, they should have been here four years ago. I think uh, one yeah, just that, smashed yeah. through your door, Steve. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but yeah, I think you know, Robotaxis is one of the big, the big bull theses. And the thing is, with the really, really stupid Tesla bulls, they're the ones who seem to think that Tesla will be the first and only to do anything. So they put down figures like, "Well, well Robotaxis is blatantly going to be a trillion dollars in revenue," and you're like, "But that's just not how." anything works they just no company ever gets there and is the only one there they might beat out the competition to win it but this isn't the sort of industry robo taxis where no one else is going to have a go at it do you know what i mean it's just it just seems highly highly unlikely but i think it's really it's hard to criticize really i think what we're looking at here is is tesla responding i mean what would have been we could have been sat here today with tesla still at the same trying to charge the same prices for its cars probably having a horrible quarter and we can criticize but all they've done is the right thing they've 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 ducked the prices down because debt is more expensive and because they have previously been raising prices uh to the point where they have strong margins they can afford to half those margins and still have better margins than most of the car companies around so look it's really hard to hard to criticize them but when it comes down to the nitty-gritty of actually having to buy them i just couldn't yep agree with all of that pretty much uh and of course tesla would it would be very unlike uh, tesla and elon musk in particular to over promise and under deliver should we talk about another company that doesn't over promise and under deliver steve potential sandbagging company netflix yeah, so let's talk about Netflix, Steve. That's the last one that we need to cover today. Um, and I suppose we might as well come up with a full disclosure straight away, Steve. This is the one I have exited, and I will go through why towards the end. And uh, you guys let us know what you think in the comments. But uh, revenue, Steve, came in at $8.2 billion. That was plus 6% if you're looking at FX neutral. It's about 2.9% uh, uh, if, if you consider the currency fluctuation. Uh, net income was $1.5 billion, again, up 3%. Margin of 18%, that's about nine basis points uh, strengthening. 
operating cash flow Steve came in at 1.4 billion that's plus 1,298 uh, percent margin of 18% plus uh, 1,630 basis points in terms of strengthening and free cash flow Steve came in at 1.3 billion that's a 10x uh, over last quarter uh, last year uh, same same quarter last year sorry margin of 16%, uh, 1,619 basis points. Now, that sounds great, Steve. I think, wow, amazing. They, they've done so well. Uh, they spent a billion less on content, Steve, so you can sub that off your free cash flow and your operating cash flow, and it becomes a lot less impressive. Uh, in terms of business metrics, paid subs was 238 million. That's about 8% growth. Paid net ads was 5.9 uh, million. This is uh, basically from paid sharing, um, moving on to new accounts. Uh, revenue was uh, plus 2.9, plus 6% FX neutral, obviously. And average revenue per uh, member was down 3% and actually down 1% FX neutral. In terms of geo splits, UCAN, Steve, is one of the regions they give. Do you know what UCAN is? It's US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, the strangest grouping of people I've uh, mm. I've ever seen. I thought it was US and Canada, and I thought, so well, why I would they give, first, yeah, yeah, why would they give so much uh, so much of Canada in the, in the name? But yeah, yeah, I did Google it just to double check. Uh, yeah, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Uh, revenue was three point six billion in this region. Uh, that was zero percent growth. Uh, net paid ads was plus one point two million. Paid subs seventy five point five million. Average revenue per user per member of $16 flat. Uh, EMEA, um, which is Europe, Middle East, and Africa, mm -hmm. revenue was $2.6 billion, down 3%. Net paid ads was plus $2.4 million. Paid subs, $79.8 million. Average re revenue per member of $10.87, so quite a bit, quite a bit less. Uh, Latin America, revenue $1.1 billion. Uh, that's minus 1% uh, decrease. Uh, net paid ads was plus 1.2 million, paid subs 42.4 million, average revenue per member of $8.58, and Asia Pacific was 919 million uh, revenue, minus 6%, net paid ads of 1.5 million, paid subs of 40.5 million, and average revenue per member of $7.66. So, not a lot of growth in those metrics, really, Steve. Uh, not, not particularly impressive, but I'll just quickly do the guide for you, Steve. So management's guide was paid net ads. Uh, they just said similar to 2Q 2023. So we take that as adding about another 5.9 million users. They said uh, revenue would come in about 8.5 billion, which is about 7% growth. Uh, net income of 1.6 billion, which is about 13% up. Uh, margin, they reckon, would be about 19%. So revenue took growth to accelerate in the second half of 2023. They say this quite a lot, but they said specifically fourth quarter 2023 is when we should see revenue start to accelerate again. And they actually revised their free cash flow uh, projection from 3.5 billion up to 5 billion uh, for this full year. But again, that's from lower content spend, not actually generating something, which to me, Steve says they're not really fully understanding what Netflix's moat is. Netflix's moat is probably, in my eyes, that they buy all of the content and starve with all the others of content and they're willing to do it on a rather, rather consistent basis. Uh, here, they've, they've dropped their content spend to just $2.5 a quarter, uh, which is quite a significant fall. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, very interesting to see that. Uh, you mentioned the $1.3 uh, this quarter and then $5 billion for the year in free cash flow, and that looks like sort of roughly 1.3 times 4 right so uh, you said it was on lower uh, content spend so don't get carried away with that idea they they think they're carrying on with this then in that case i wonder whether that i wonder whether that 
adds a double pressure then. So on the one hand, they're busy um, putting pressure on people's shared uh, accounts and so on, as well they ought to, by the way. Um, They ought to be able to get people to pay for their own accounts. But also then taking the pressure off the the kind of content flywheel um, is, is making... At the time, you're causing people to actively think about paying for it um, rather than just kind of mindlessly running their subscription on because all of a sudden they can't do that. They need to buy their way in. You're going to start dialing back the content thing. Um, That, to me, looks like interesting timing on that particular version. Yeah, definitely does, doesn't it? It definitely does. So, I I mean, I was looking at the valuation, and this is predominantly the reason why I I chose to exit it. So it fell about 8% on the day, but it still left me up about 36%, I think it was. So I was still up very healthily, even though I had about, I think it was about an 8 or 10% negative um, effects on it as well. So I was probably up a, a, a lot more, really. But price to free cash flow, Steve, I was working out was about 72 before the earnings, coming down to 49 if you factor in that artificial... Um, artificial increase it'll be about 42 if management hits this 5 billion mm-hmm. target so it's definitely not a cheap stock so i ran it again for a reverse dcf to try and convince myself that the growth was achievable and and obviously it depends on your inputs but i was just using standard inputs of a terminal growth rate of about two percent after 10 years uh, a discount rate of 10 uh, and this would mean that you'd need about 17 percent free cash flow growth for the next 10 years to justify the valuation uh, it's evidently a lot more today at today's prices than what i paid for it steve so that's why i took the cash on it uh, i thought this one was kind of like uh, my whole idea on it basically was formed o- along that everybody was wrong when this price went down uh, they were wrong because uh, netflix was not at the at the end of its growth path in terms of subscribers and this wasn't like the, the huge collapse in subscribers that people thought was just going to happen and they had plenty up their sleeve to um to to you know basically get that share price back up via via growth what they've done steve is grow steadily uh but the share price has grown exponentially and i thought that was a perfect time for me to uh let somebody else be uh <laughs> let somebody else play the greater fool theory and um yeah i'm sat sat with the money in a money market fund at the moment steve, just planning my next move interesting we'll look forward to seeing what that is i mean that they said they're guiding for net ads in the region of six million uh again also in the next quarter so you said same as previous one just gone which was i think 5.9 a couple of things there uh, one is that that 5.9 is worth pointing out i suppose was miles higher than they people were expecting i thought i i don't have the number in front of me but i thought the number that was guided for began with a one uh point something for new ads for the quarter just gone uh and they appear to have absolutely knocked the cover off that one in ways that the market is not terribly impressed by with the stock going down that didn't seem to translate into much more in the way of kind of revenue and profit yeah well they they did the same thing as they did last time because they've stopped actually uh, reporting um well they said that they were stopped kind of guiding for paid uh, paid that was my other part of this yeah yeah, and they just say, oh, it'll be about the same as last quarter, which which was about a one point, I think a one point six million ad. So we're right. expecting one point six. So to get okay. six was, uh, oh, nearly six million was a big a big change. Yeah, so that that was a big kind of push. It didn't really show up in the kind of top and bottom lines. Uh, we we were saying beforehand, uh, a bit of FX help doesn't help um, there, but 
it's it's interesting Netflix. I got the impression that you were buying at a time when uh, another video I saw on this said, "Look, not everything, uh, not a lot needs to go right for this here for this to move up off of these levels." And you don't have to think everyone is wrong about everything here. You only have to think there's a lot of uh, kind of bearish points, reasonable ones, and that their subscriber numbers were down. Um, and that's not what people were expecting from Netflix by any means. Uh, they were wrong about Meta around the same time too for the broadly the same reasons if people thought everything was going wrong at the same time uh, and I did fine there but I was out a bit quicker than you were from this one it's interesting Netflix I I also think it kind of comes up light on the free cash thing which is why I'm not buying it but I'm interested to see that at least you having worked it out have the kind of courage of your uh, convictions with these things when I saw Brian Faroli talking about Tesla he appeared to say to my eyes and I may have heard him wrong here uh, I would encourage people to check out his video. He appeared to say something along the lines of, look, that's a very big number. I think, can they do it? Probably not. But I'm going to keep the stock anyway because I think it will go up. Uh, which to me sounds almost entirely like a way of saying, yeah, don't believe in this as an investment, but reckon I can sell it to someone for something more. So that does sound a lot like greater full theory. However, uh, he has more money than I do. He's more successful than I am. He knows more about that stock and investing than I do. So... Um, I like. I, I think I like the idea that you're out of Netflix here, uh, Stephen. Interested in seeing where you go next. Maybe we'll come up with some ideas next week. Yeah, me too. I'm interested to see where I go next, Steve, because at the moment I don't have a clue. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Okay, where do you think Steve should go next with his stocks? Uh, also, comment these down below. We'll get Paul back next week. No, we won't. And have a section called Stocks for Steve uh, D. Um, <laughs> and we'll see what he can kind of come up with here. So, Or, or maybe I'll just do it by myself uh, for next time. Anyway, uh, that was our show, pretty much. It was a more than usual amount of cricket. This is rapidly growing into a cricket podcast. Eventually, one day, maybe, hopefully, possibly, Paul will come back and then he will stop us talking about cricket for a quarter of an hour. But until then, we will see you next week on the Playing Ashes FTSE podcast.